The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians 3 at verse 14, continuing our study in Ephesians. And you probably noticed as we sang those hymns about the love of Christ, about our love to Christ, that's a theme, one of the main themes of this wonderful prayer we have of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians three fourteen, as we think about that request, more love to thee, this is a prayer that certainly ties into that theme, and we need to be praying this prayer. Hear the word of God, Ephesians 3, at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we ask for your help in understanding the depths of your word, that your spirit might apply it to each one of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. It's probably a familiar refrain to most of us. And probably a genuine question many times throughout our Christian experience. When we say and ask the Lord, Lord, I've asked you to change me. Why haven't my prayers been answered? That issue of sanctification and the fact that we know we are not, are not fully sanctified in this life is a cause for grief in the Christian's life. But how would we answer that honest question about why change is so slow? Well, the book of James tells us that one reason is that we don't receive when we ask because we ask with wrong motives and that we might spend it on our pleasures or on our lusts. And certainly that may be the answer some of the time, but at other times our motives are godly. Our motives are in accordance with God's will, especially in this area of sanctification. We want to glorify God in our lives. We want to become more like Christ, and still it seems that often our prayers are not heard. And there are many scriptural reasons that we could point to in answering that question in part. Christian, the Christian life and experience is a war. We're not finished with the war until 
we're finished with this life. We know that our ultimate hope is the hope of glory and being glorified. We acknowledge the wisdom of God in the mystery of how he sanctifies his people. And also the whole direction of Scripture pointing us to our need for the body of Christ. We like to be too independent. We need one another in the body, in the church. And also the necessity of our taking our responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work within us. But one part of the answer that I believe we have before us in this prayer is one that we want to focus on. Paul has concluded at the end of chapter 3 his doctrinal portion of this letter. And the second half, although it's peppered with theology as well, Paul can never just simply exhort. He always has the richness of the doctrine of Christ and the fullness of Christ there. But the second half is predominantly practical application to life, as we'll come to see in the months to come. But before he launches into this practical portion, he again prays for the believers. He's prayed in chapter 1. He prays again here. And the content of Paul's prayer here is very instructive in terms of answering this question, why doesn't God hear my prayer and change me? And the answer indicated by this prayer could be summarized like this. God isn't hearing us and changing us because we are not praying and looking for change in the right way. God isn't hearing us because we're not approaching this in the right way. Not speaking about matter of method. It's not as if there's a special, special few steps that we can do. But in the sense of understanding how God works to bring change and how he wants us to be fundamentally changed by the Spirit. Think of it this way. Our typical approach might be to think of an area of our lives, some area of temptation or sin or weakness or habitual problem area of our life, and to pray, God, change me. And kind of pray about that area in isolation from the rest of our Christian life and walk. And maybe hope that in the sense that if we pray that enough, one day we will wake up and just we will be changed. No um, wrong desires anymore, no habits to overcome. Somehow that God has supernaturally removed all of that and we're just changed overnight. And sometimes God does work in dramatic ways in Christians' lives in changing us from within, in giving us new desires for right things. But typically, that's not the way that God works because God wants us to have a deep and abiding experience of His presence and His power and His love and the work of Christ in all change. Do you see what I'm saying? Let me say that again. We just want change because we don't like certain things about our lives. Our sin gets in the way of our relationships, our family relationships, in our jobs, even in the church. We see sin messes things up, and we don't like that, especially sin that comes out in ways like that. 
But God just doesn't let us change outwardly. And I go back to what I just said. He wants us to have a deep and abiding experience to know the reality of his presence and the love of Christ and his transforming power based on the work of Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? That's the full orb kind of change that God wants. He wants us to grow in faith and in the exercise of faith in Christ in this process of change. And that's what we see in this prayer. This prayer is almost like a ladder with, the, with petitions climbing the ladder, so to speak. And when you get to verse 19, you get to the very top rung, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We'll talk more about what that means, but essentially it's talking about the character of God himself, the communicable attributes of God, that we would become more like him. And he, and he gets to that point, but to understand this, we have to back up and we have to enter into the reality of what goes before. So let's look at the petitions of this prayer as we go through them one by one and seek to apply it in this way. The first petition is prayer for the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul begins his prayer with this introduction, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Speaking about how, in a sense, everything is derived from the character and the wisdom of God. And then still focusing on the Father and his power, he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. And now he's going to go into the specific petitions. But he's, he's beginning with the glory of God and the riches of God. And out of that, or according to, we would say, the, the riches of God's glory. And then we come to the first petition at the end of verse 16 that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's the primary petition of the prayer. And the rest of the petitions are participles. The part of speech is different than that. And they're all kind of subsidiary to that. That's the main petition of the prayer, that you be given power through the spirit in your inner being. So we start with this petition. Praying for the help of the Holy Spirit, for the enabling of the Holy Spirit, for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We've already been given the Spirit. We know that. And it's not as if we receive the Spirit as if it's a quantitative uh, fluid, something to fill us up, but for a greater experience of the power of the Spirit in our lives. That must be a regular part of our praying. In Luke chapter 11, when we have Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer and Jesus telling his disciples how to pray, he goes on and tells the story about uh, how much more, if you earthly fathers know how to give good things, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In Matthew's account, it is good things. How much more will will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? But Luke summarizes all the good things that God gives us in Christ by the ultimate gift of the Holy Spirit. All good things are summed up in the gift of the Holy Spirit to us. That's what Paul's speaking about here, that you'd be strengthened with power by the Spirit in your inner man, in your inner being. 
It harkens back to Acts chapter 4. We just saw this a few weeks ago in the morning when Dr. Rogers spoke about Acts 4 and the first persecution that breaks out against the church. And we find the church, as that persecution breaks out, they go to the Lord in prayer and they cry out to the sovereign God. And, and basically they say, oh Lord, see, look at what's happening here. And, and they cry out and the answer comes in verse 31 of Acts 4. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, weren't they filled with the Holy Spirit before that? Yes. But we need fresh measures of the Holy Spirit, so to speak. We need our daily dose of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we can't go on yesterday's grace. We need to be praying for the power of the Holy Spirit. Or our lives begin to look like a lot of activity without any real power. I was just hearing that there are about 150,000 people in the New York, New Jersey area without power. And just thinking, they've had about two weeks now without power. But it's down from 8 million without power at the height of the Hurricane Sandy, uh, down to 150,000. But those 150,000 that are left really feel the two weeks without power. They're at the end of themselves. You know, you see the news reports, and it's just been so hard um, because life without power is hard. There's no heat. There's no electricity. They're in the dark. It's just, it's just hard. I just look at that and see the metaphor for living the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. It is very, very hard. Impossible. You can't live according to the will of God without the enabling, daily enabling of the Holy Spirit. But so many times we have a lot of activity without power. And so we need to pray specifically for the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we need to pray for increased communion with Christ by faith. Pray for increased communion with Christ by faith. The beginning of verse 17 starts up the ladder on the next rung here so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Interesting request, isn't it? Paul's writing to believers, and certainly Christ dwells in their heart already through faith. But he's saying the foremost result of of the enabling of the work of the Holy Spirit will be a greater sense by faith of communion with Jesus Christ, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that these believers would grow in their communion with Christ. You've heard us speak many times about union and communion. Christians have union with Christ. The beginning of Ephesians talks a lot about that, that we are in Christ. If you underline the word in Christ or in Him, in Ephesians 1, you see it multiple times. So we have union with Christ. These Ephesians had union with Christ Paul is praying that they would have increased communion with Christ. Just like in a marriage, uh, you are married on your wedding day. But the communion you have as husband and wife, and you think what it'll look back at, at, as you look back from your 50th or maybe even your 60th wedding anniversary, and you think of all that life you've lived together, all those times that you shared, all the highlights, all the difficulties and hardships, all the joys, and, and 
look at all the communion that has been established through those 50 or 60 years. That's what Paul's talking about in terms of our fellowship with Christ. And it's linked to the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit primarily is to mediate the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ to believers as they feed on Him by faith. Do you hear that? That's, it's important. The, medi- the, the Holy Spirit is not some magical entity just changing our lives regardless of the work of Christ. The Holy Spirit works to mediate the presence of Jesus Christ to our lives so that Jesus may be better known by us, better loved by us, but better trusted by us, better praised and honored and obeyed in our lives. That's the work of the Spirit. John 16, 14, speaking of the Spirit, John says that He, the Holy Spirit, brings glory to me, Christ's speaking here, the Holy Spirit brings glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Jesus is speaking about what the work of the Holy Spirit will be like. He will take from what is Christ. He will take from the sufficiency of all that Jesus Christ has accomplished by His work. And the Holy Spirit mediates that. Think of the Holy Spirit as pouring the benefits and the blessings of what Jesus Christ has accomplished into the believer's life. That's why it's so natural for Paul to move from strengthened with power by the Spirit, verse 16, to that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The one aim of the Holy Spirit is to take me to Christ, to bring me into communion with Christ, and to enable me to live for Christ. And so just think about that in terms of how God changes our lives, how we pray for change. Let's say we're struggling with the pressure of a culture culture that is completely materialistic. We know that's, that's the daily life that we live. We're going to go out into our lives this week, and none of us are unaffected by the culture of materialism that tells us to live for this present world, that tempts us in terms of riches and comfort and security and pleasure. It's there all the time. It, it may be different ways coming to different ones of us at different times in our lives, but There's that temptation. We all will face that this week. Change in facing the materialistic worldview involves a deeper experience of communion with Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? We have to look at change in a full-orbed, biblical way. We can't just say, I want to be less materialistic and not have that battle be related to deeper communion with Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that glorious? In other words, change is always related to deepening our communion with Jesus Christ. And you read about missionaries, you read about those who have suffered deeply for Christ. And you know that in their prison cell or in their suffering or hardship, certainly the foundation of what's happened there is that they've experienced deep communion with their Lord in suffering, and they're radically changed because of it. So pray for increased communion with Christ. And thirdly, pray for greater love. Here we have the end of verse 17. 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So we need to pray for greater love. And I believe that this, these verses contain both greater love from Christ, the love of Christ, knowing the love of Christ, which is at the foundation, but also the overflowing of love for God and love for others in our lives. So pray for greater love of both kinds, God's love for us, that we would know it more deeply, and our love for God. Essentially, Paul is saying, love is the soil and the foundation. He uses these analogies that you be rooted and grounded. It's like your love has to be rooted in the love of Christ. When we bought our house, it was a chicken farm before they built houses on it. And I think the soil had been pretty good, but you know how they scrape away the top soil. And it seemed like there was about an inch and a half of topsoil, and then under that was clay and rocks. It just seems like um, if we wanted to plant anything, we had to have the plants rooted in something good. So we, for a couple of years after we moved in, we kept getting those loads of mushroom soil, you know, and we put those on and closed the windows immediately because mushroom soil does not smell good. Patty would say, are you going to get this stuff on quick? Get it on there because, boy, but that soil was rich, and that's what we needed to have the flowers and the plants be rooted in. And so I look at it this way, that when Paul speaks about that we are rooted and grounded in love, he's speaking primarily about the love of Christ. So prayer for change, again, we go back to, has to be comprehensive. It has to be rooted in knowing Christ's love. We have to be plants rooted in the richness of his soil, grounded in Christ. That, that metaphor speaks about the foundation, that we're grounded, that we have a firm foundation in Christ. No change will take place in our life that's not linked to the love of Christ. Change is not going to be self-centered and self-oriented. True biblical change is rooted in Christ and takes place in the pathway of the cross. Six times the Gospels say, take up your cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross. That's the way of the cross, that we die to sinful self and live for Christ and his love. We're filled with his love, and so we can die to sinful self. Going the way of the cross springs from a genuine experience of Christ's love. Paul will talk about this more, but just glance across the page at chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Notice how that verse contains both aspects of that. Imitating God's love. We're to love God and others. We do it by remembering that we are beloved children. We are loved by God. Christ loved us, gave himself up for us. Now we're to imitate that and live that way. Change in our lives has to flow out of the love of Christ transforming us from within. We need to know Christ's surpassing love. And even that's spoken and 
prayed for in this paradoxical way. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You and I will never fully know the love of Christ, at least in this life. And I don't know if that will be true even in the life to come. I think even in heaven we'll be growing in our knowledge and experience of the love of Christ. That's especially why I picked that second hymn about, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. It's like an ocean. So it's surpassing knowledge, but the blessing is we grow in knowing that love, and that's linked to change in our lives. So as we're praying for change, we're not really to focus on our circumstances. We're really not even to focus so much on ourselves on the problem itself. Yes, we see these things and we pray about them, but our prayer needs to be, oh Lord, let me know the love of Jesus Christ in this situation and make his love known. Whatever the circumstances of my trial or temptation are, let me face this as a dearly beloved child of God. Let me grow in my knowledge of the surpassing love of Christ. I taught a class this morning in the, in the Loving as Christ Loves Sunday School class. It was on resentment. Some of you were in that class. We were just talking about the temptation to resentment and how the biblical call is to forgive and how forgiveness is costly. So we easily go the pathway of resentment bitterness, and it establishes almost a root system in our lives. It starts to consume us. It twists us. It changes us. And we were talking about the fact that you and I cannot just will ourselves not to be resentful. We can't just produce that in our own strength. Maybe to some degree we can, but not ultimately, and not in a, in a true core of our being kind of way. And so our class discussed how the fact is that we need the love of Jesus Christ to change us from within. That's an example of this need to pray for greater love. I like the hymn, We have not loved thee as we ought, nor cared that we are loved by thee. Thy presence we have coldly sought and feebly longed thy face to see. Lord, give a pure and loving heart to feel and own the love Thou art. In other words, the hymnal is the hymn is confessing we have not loved thee as we ought to have loved thee. But the problem is that we haven't even cared that we are loved by you. Now we we do we know we take our stand in Christ's love, but on a daily basis, are we meditating on the love of Christ? Are we going to the cross and thinking of his love. I know we can't do that every moment of the day, but do our minds go to the love of Christ? That's what the hymn will speaking about in that hymn. Or this hymn, I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face, content to let the world go by, to know no gain nor loss, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross." That idea of glorying in the cross because of the love of Christ. Well, our fourth petition is to pray for fullness. Verse 19. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This verse often stumps us. We just read that and think, 
You know, it's kind of like Mary Poppins saying supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. You know, it's just so exalted that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It sounds like a mystical experience that maybe, you know, someone in an ivory tower somewhere has that experience. But that's not what it is. It's for ordinary Christians filled with the translation that the ESV has, that you may be filled with. The word with there is this little Greek word that usually has in view the goal. The King James Version, or the word unto, is kind of a good translation of that. You may be filled. The NIV has, they may be filled to the measure, is the way they translate that one little word. You may be filled unto, with the goal of, the fullness of God. And the fullness of God has the meaning, essentially, of the character of God, the, the attributes of God. Now, the incommunicable attributes of God we can't have. We're not omnipotent. We're not omniscient. But the communicable attributes we can be. We can be holy more and more like God. We can be loving like God. We can be just. So the, the idea here is that as this ladder of petitions goes up, we are achieving and becoming more and more like God in his character. And the book of Ephesians has this in many times. Just an example or two, if you go to chapter 4, not far off here, verse 14, he's describing it in similar terms. He says, he's talking about the work of being built up, and he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's another similar expression, talking about conformity in our character to Christ. Or verse 24, 424, he's talking about putting on the new self. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. Notice that phrase, the likeness of God, the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. And really, after Paul prays this prayer, essentially chapters 4, 5, and 6 are an exposition of what the fullness of God looks like. This is what it looks like practically as we live it out. It's not a mystery. It's not something for mystics only to know. It means the character of God fleshed out in our lives. In other words, it's really speaking of comprehensive change, not just this little tweaking something here and over there that we don't like in our lives, but comprehensive change into the image of God himself. It has to do with our desires, has to do with our goals, our priorities, our attitudes, our words. You see, it's not just external. It's in the fullness of God himself. And what an incredible goal that is to think, to reflect the image of God himself. And in fact, he concludes this prayer in verse 21, to him be glory in the church. Isn't that amazing? We know that to him be glory in Christ, our Lord, he says that as well. But to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. In other words, God is going to be glorified more and more as this kind of change is worked out in his people's lives. So we have to ask ourselves, is this the context of our praying for change? It's kind of like 
you can miss the forest for the trees. Last time we were at the Grand Canyon looking at standing on the edge, you have this sense that you just are seeing a little part of it, and that's because you are. You just have this sense of what a massive, beautiful vista of grandeur. And it makes you feel awfully small, and it makes you feel like, well, let's drive down the road and see another spot. So you do that, and you feel the same way. Well, let's drive down to the next viewing spot, and you just keep going. And the Grand Canyon can't be comprehended, it seems. I'm sure that maybe it's better if you fly over it, if you have ever done that. What a grand, comprehensive vista. And in a sense, that's what we're seeing this abbreviated statement in verse 19, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's a Grand Canyon view of change in our lives. So you see what you're missing out, what we're missing out, if we aren't praying like this, praying this kind of prayer. And I hope that as we've gone through this and as we continue and wrap this up, that you will be thinking about praying this prayer for yourself. And praying it for your loved ones. Maybe memorize this prayer. And think of the main petitions and be praying them regularly as you pray for God to work His goodwill in your life. Well, that brings us to the conclusion. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory. What a precious promise this is. And I would like us to have three practical applications from this as we consider this and as we just look back on the whole prayer. The first application is this. Know who you are by faith. Know who you are by faith. Believe the truth of God. Recognize and receive by faith your position in Christ. Really, this prayer is all about our union with Christ and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And we could go back and look at chapter 1, that we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been chosen in Christ. We We are to be, we are to exist to the praise of His glorious grace. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The eyes of our hearts have been enlightened. All these things, we who are once dead in trespasses and sins, He seated us in the heavenly realms in Christ. And now, part of the way we are to live out our lives is to know who we are by faith. That's a battle. Christians have a battle to believe that every day because Satan and his lies are always telling us falsehood. I was reading about Daniel Day-Lewis, the actor who's starring in the upcoming film Lincoln, and I hope to see that when it comes out or at some point. But one of the actors who worked with him on the set said that the thing about Daniel day Lewis, who is a great actor, and he doesn't act in many films. Maybe you remember him if you saw Last of the Mohegans. Um, I know he's done others as well. I haven't seen them. But he said that Daniel Day-Lewis gets into character when they start to film the, the movie, and he doesn't get out of character till they're done. So I don't know what his family does or if he's married or anything, but it seemed like it would be a mess to have Lincoln there all the time, you know, in his top hat and everything. But One character who worked with him on the set said this in an interview. He said, I know it sounds strange. I know that Lincoln died. You know, he was assassinated in, in, you know, over a hundred years ago. I know he's historical. But when I'm acting on the set, that's Lincoln. I mean, that's Daniel Day-Lewis is Lincoln. I've 
I think that in my mind. I think that's Lincoln. And I just see the coffee breaks and things like that. Apparently, Lewis doesn't go out of character. I'm just thinking of what it's like to hang around him. You know, it's just, it's still Lincoln. It would be a bit odd. But that's a, I don't know what that does to his life, but that's an example of knowing who you are. Daniel Day Lewis knows who he is. He has to stay in character completely. Well, that is less true than Christians knowing who they are. Because Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, really isn't Lincoln. I hate to tell him that, but he's really not. We are new creations in Christ. We have to know that by faith. The second point is this. Yes, we must believe who we are in Christ. Secondly, we must work out this knowledge in our lives. First, we know who we are. Second, work it out in our life. Live out your position in Christ every day. Live out who you are in Christ as you keep coming to Jesus Christ, the fountain of living water in our lives, the bread of life. We know who we are by faith, and then we work that out. We live it out by keep coming to Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.6 says it this way. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And there are lots of other scriptures that talk about that. As we've received Christ, so live in him. God is at work in our lives. He is remaking us into his likeness. He is He is filling us with respect to the fullness of God. God is at work. And so as we think of these petitions and understanding them, look at our lives in this way. You know, think how hard it would be for some of these Hollywood stars to live their lives, especially Hollywood stars who are teenagers when they become stars. I think of the Miley Cyruses and the Lindsay Lowens, who, who seem to go so wrong, because what a great temptation it is. They have everything. They've arrived. They have wealth. They have fame. And how easy it is to miss Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, the Lord of glory. Well, in a lesser sense, we might stay, but still powerfully tempting for all of us. It's possible for us to live out our lives and miss Jesus Christ. We know these things in one sense by faith. We need to keep working out this knowledge in our lives. We have to keep coming to Jesus Christ as the fountain of life. He's the one who's able to do far more than we can ask or think. And then focus faith, number three, focus faith on the sufficiency of God. Focus faith on the sufficiency of God. Verses 20 and 21 are essentially a promise for us. They're a promise. They're an amazing promise to us. You could just think how this builds. God, uh, Paul could have said, the Lord could have said to us through Paul, now to him who is able to do more than we ask or think. No, he doesn't say that. He says, now to him who is able to do abundantly more than all we ask or think. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. You see how superlative that is, how exalted that is? It's like you can't state a promise 
in a more exalted way. We read through this prayer and we think, oh, I fall so short of this. The Spirit's power, the communion with Christ, knowing His love, the fullness of God. And I know I just live down here in the ordinary. I'm weak. That's where we all are, yes, in one sense. But the promise is here to encourage our faith. Think of it. This promise that's tacked on to the end of this prayer in such a glorious way. He's able to do more than we can ask or think according to His power that is at work within us. It's not His power that's way out there somewhere. It's His power at work within us. It's a doxology, and it deals with the possible lack of faith that is in all of our lives in light of the soaring heights of this petition of this prayer, and all of it with the goal to Him be the glory, the goal of the glory of God. Isn't that thrilling? Doesn't that just make you want to be praying this prayer every day? The promise of God's power at work within us, you and I must not stagger with unbelief at the promises of God. They are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this prayer. We thank you for your work We thank you that even though we feel how weak we are and how little we love you and how much we need more love to thee and how dull our hearts often are and how distracted we are by the things of this world and the pleasures and cares of this life, thank you that Jesus is the great high priest who is at work, who is ever living to make intercession for us who lived and died and rose again and is seated at your right hand, that we might be conformed to his image. We long for that. We pray for that. We pray for the reality of this prayer to sink into our hearts that we might bring glory to you. Thank you for your word. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.